This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. I'm Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and with me right now I have William Zahner. Uh, I'm going to be calling you Bill, if you don't mind. That's perfect. That's <laughs> okay. Uh, he's an assistant professor in the School of Education at Boston University, and we're going to be talking today about his forthcoming article uh, in J- uh, Journal of Mathematical Behavior that's in Volume 31. Um, it's entitled Mathematics Teaching Practices with Technology that Support Conceptual Understanding for Latino and Latina Students. Um, so thanks for coming and being here with us. All right. Thanks for having me. This is great to be here. Um, so I want to actually just start by uh, backing up a little bit and asking you about your dissertation, your dissertation advisor, just to give us some background on where you're coming from. Sure. Uh, so my dissertation was called uh, How to Do Math with Words, Learning Algebra Through Peer Discussions. And I did my graduate studies at UC Santa Cruz, and my advisor was Judith Moscovich. And uh, my study was looking at how students learn to reason about rate and linear functions in the context of peer discussions. And so it was a six-week study in a classroom in California, in a bilingual algebra classroom. And it was bilingual, so there's some connection there, too, to Mm -hmm. what we're going to talk about here with Latino and Latina students. Um, So... Can you kind of set for us uh, the project from which this study falls out of? Sure. Um, Well, so this study was an extension of the Scaling Up SimCalc study. And I should explain a little bit of the background. That uh, as a graduate student, I was a fellow with the Center for the Mathematics Education of Latinos and Latinas. Okay. So SIMELA is what we we call it for short. Uh Um, And so I was a fellow with SIMELA. And so this paper grew out of a collaboration between uh, researchers from Simela and researchers from SRI International who were working on the Scaling Up SimCalc study. Okay. And so this, this project and this paper in particular grew out of that collaboration. So this actually wasn't out of my dissertation, mm-hmm. uh, but the topic was in some ways related to uh, what I did in my dissertation mm-hmm. study as well. And I've used SimCalc in some of my methods courses and with master's uh, students in teaching. But I was wondering, just in case there's some listeners that aren't familiar with SimCalc, can you give just a quick nutshell oh, sure. of what that looks like? Of course, like? yeah. So the SimCalc, uh, SimCalc is a project that was started by Jim Caffett uh, at UMass Dartmouth uh, more than 15 years ago. And the basis of SimCalc is the idea of relating multiple representations of uh, functional relationships mm-hmm. and helping students relate these multiple relationships as a way to create powerful learning opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so SimCalc is a software tool that uh, has dynamically linked graphs, tables, equations, and uh, animations of, uh, of motion. And uh, one of the famous quotations from Caput was that uh, um, technology by itself is, uh, you know, without good curriculum uh, isn't worth the silicon it's written on. And I think that <laughs> he's making the point that the technology works together with curriculum. And so he designed both the technology with the dynamically linked representations uh, and also curriculum units uh, targeting concepts about rate of change, uh, slope, Mm -hmm. um, even accumulation of change, so Mm -hmm. looking at the inverse of the rate, and uh, showed that students, uh, very young students, can actually do some really complex mathematics, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly when they have the feedback of the SimCalc environment and a really Mm -hmm. well-written curriculum unit. And instant feedback, too. And it's as they are manipulating something, they're seeing really the effects that it's having. Exactly. And there's some great studies that have come out of it. And it's been a really interesting project uh, 
across the years. And so the scaling up SimCalc study, this particular uh, larger study that we grew out of, mm -hmm. uh, was a study that the purpose was to see whether or not SimCalc and the positive results they had observed, you know, both with or starting with you know individual students and mm -hmm. then with the classroom, uh, whether that could be scaled up across a larger group. Thanks. So that now that leads us to the study that we want to talk about today uh, in in JMB um, about supporting conceptual understanding with Latino and Latina students. So can you now kind of situate us towards that particular study? Sure, absolutely. So the results of the scaling up SimCalc study. Uh, first of all, showed a, a significant and pretty large main effect that the SimCalc treatment was, in fact, mm -hmm. uh, beneficial for students. And that was measured using an assessment that was designed to be aligned with a curriculum unit that used SimCalc to teach rate and proportional reasoning. And the treatment group of teachers mm -hmm. received uh, training on using that unit, and the control group received the typical uh, kind of business-as-usual professional development and taught their business-as-usual units uh, on the same on topic. The same topic. Okay. And then uh, in the study, they went ahead and did the experiment, um, and it's a delayed treatment design so that the control group actually got some calc the second year of the study. Okay. Um, and they found this main effect was, was uh, significant and then also found that within subgroups of students, so by gender or uh, high SES, low SES, um, and by language status, they found that there was still a main effect or, or an effect. And so mm -hmm. that led to uh, our collaborators at SRI International contacting us uh, at Samela mm -hmm. at UC Santa Cruz okay. um, and built this collaboration to investigate and kind of probe what was going on with the uh, students who are classified as English learners. Mm -hmm. Why was SimCalc successful with them? And in particular, the uh, unit was designed in a way to be accessible, but it wasn't necessarily tailored towards uh, the it, needs of English learners. And right. So they it wasn't designed that. for the purpose of you know having the main effect for English language learners. It just was a sort of happy coincidence that it was having an effect on that population. Right. Exactly. Uh -huh. And so there are some questions about what was it about the teaching practices that SimCalc teachers were doing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to call the treatment teachers the SimCalc teachers because okay. it's easier to say and it yeah, yeah. doesn't sound so clinical. <laughs> um, so what were the SimCalc teachers doing that mm -hmm. uh, that worked and right. that worked particularly with linguistically diverse students? Okay, so, so then with this paper you're starting to look more closely at that particular question. Exactly. Um, and so what was the setting, what was the data that you were looking at for this paper? So the... Uh, Overall study had, I think it was 70, Somewhere. 48 treatment, excuse me. Okay, 48. 48 treatment classrooms. And so of that group, um, about 13 of them were filmed teaching one particular lesson on one particular day. It was called On the Road, and it was this pivotal lesson in the, uh, in the unit. And then of those 13, three of them <coughs> were in the Rio Grande Valley, okay. and, which is a very highly linguistically diverse section of Texas, and also an area where Spanish is as common as English uh, in you know, the out-of-school experience. And so mm -hmm. uh, just a very, very linguistically diverse community and, right. you know, with students who have lots of different language backgrounds, okay. um, you know, from recent immigrant students to third-generation Latino students mm -hmm. in, the, in the same region. And so that became our main focus was looking at those three case studies to from, look at the teaching practice. From that context and teaching that lesson on the road. Exactly. And so the on the road, uh, listeners are probably familiar. It's kind of if you imagine a piecewise linear graph mm -hmm. and now thinking about, you know, what would be a real-world situation of maybe somebody like, traveling or somebody biking or I'm not sure what it was mm -hmm. um, that would produce 
that kind of graph, you know, if it's a, what was it, a, dis, uh, a distance, distance time, time, time graph? graph? Or, right. Okay, I wasn't sure if it was right. And so it was three piecewise distance time graphs, and they okay. get uh, progressively more complicated. And, of course, this is where uh, the audio medium is not so good at uh, yeah. making <laughs> gestures with your hands. With I'm, I'm gesturing wildly, but it's not going to get through to the uh, microphone here. Uh-huh. Um, and so the way that the lesson was written, there were three graphs that got progressively more complicated. Mm-hmm. And so the first one showed... Uh, I think the van was traveling at a constant rate, and this bus was traveling fast and then uh, slowed down, and then, or two constant rates, I should say, uh-huh. to be technically correct. Right. Um, and then uh, the second graph shows a horizontal segment. Right. And we know from previous research that when students are looking at a distance time graph and they see a horizontal segment, they almost always say it's going at a steady pace or it's continuing uh, along, or right, they're, right. they're never quite sure what to what to make of that, at least at first. That's a pretty challenging right. For that thing. horizontal segment, they almost want it to be a speed versus time graph instead of a distance versus time graph. Right. So informally, we might say that. It's pretty right. hard because it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those kind of <laughs> transitional concepts, right. right? But that's what happens is they'll say, oh, it's going along at a steady rate or, mm-hmm. or so on. And then when there's a negative slope line, which, you know, in the canonical interpretation means going backwards, mm-hmm. people might then go to more of a speed-looking graph, right, and say, oh, it's slowing down right. until it got back down to zero, stopped, and then started up again. Okay. So that's what the lesson was about, was looking at these three different graphs, and the students were asked to tell a story about each graph, describe what happened uh-huh. using more precise language, so describing the speeds of each vehicle at each time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had the support of the SimCalc software, which actually had an animation and that exact graph that okay. they could then play. So they right. could make a conjecture and then play the graph and get the feedback and see whether or not their conjecture was, you know, was right. true or not. So that's where SimCalc really comes in in a pretty powerful way into that lesson. Right. So it turns that graphing interpretation task into an actual interactive event you okay. know, where you can make a hypothesis and test it and see what happens. You mentioned the three teachers that you were looking at. So um, in, the, in the article, you refer to them as Teacher N, mm-hmm. Teacher E, and Teacher M. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to ask you, uh, you know, to talk about some of the things, some of the themes that emerged when you were looking at those different classrooms of Teacher N, Teacher E, and Teacher M. Sure. So the three teachers uh, also provide a really interesting contrast in the outcomes for their students. And so uh-huh. that was part of the interest in, in these three teachers, too, was, or I guess maybe a felicitous uh, event that we had an interesting contrast. So, and te- This is in the pre-post results in the of, pre-post the, of results the larger project? Of the larger project, okay. exactly. So okay. looking at their students' gain scores on the pre-test and post-test, uh, teachers E and M, M like Mary, mm-hmm. had uh, higher gain scores than teacher N. And in fact, Teacher N's gain score, even though Teacher N was part of the treatment group, mm-hmm. uh, was lower than the gain score of the average of the entire oh. study. Okay. So his gain score was unexpectedly low mm-hmm. compared to the treatment group, mm-hmm. while teachers E and M were right along with the rest so of the So it gives pack. you a chance to compare and contrast teachers that are all doing SimCalc lessons mm-hmm. but had different results. Right, students student. had really different, uh, okay. different results on a curriculum aligned assessment that included both conceptually demanding items as well as the more traditional items that you might see on a state test. Uh-huh. So uh, what were some of the themes then now when you're looking at the lesson and the way they uh, ran the lesson and the kinds of things that were going on, what did you focus on and what did you see? Sure, so we looked at uh, the lesson teaching event. So what we had was a video record of the three teachers teaching the same lesson. And so we wanted to come up with some way of talking about 
what was similar and what was different about the lessons, okay. how they structured it. Okay. And then we focused our analysis on the way that they structured the class itself, so the format of the class and the sequencing of the class. Uh, we looked at their mathematical discourse practices. Mm -hmm. And finally, we looked, sorry, we followed up a little bit on the idea of responsiveness, which was something that Jessica Pearson looked at in her dissertation. Oh. Um, and so looked at the responsiveness of the teachers. How do they re respond to student contributions? And okay. looking at the response mm -hmm. to student errors and All right. how they built on those student ideas. Okay. So if we, if we come back, so you, the first thing you mentioned was how they structure the lessons. So um, mm -hmm. did you notice any, any differences that seemed uh, salient in terms of the lesson structure? Absolutely. So probably the most salient and interesting difference is that teacher N, the teacher with the relatively low gain scores, mm -hmm. uh, worked through the three pages of the workbook as a whole class teacher-led discussion. So And straight through the whole. Teacher in front, going through graph number one, talking about the graph, talking about the story, answering the questions, then went through graph number two. Mm -hmm. And he was doing a pretty traditional form of teacher interaction with the class where he would you know, ask a question, get a response, mm -hmm. um, maybe do an evaluation or maybe ask another question. Okay. Um, and so he spent about 35 minutes working through the uh, three pages of three graphs and actually there was a, a map representation that was the first page of the, of the unit of that, that lesson. Okay. Um, teachers E and M had a really different structure. Okay. So teachers E and M interspersed each question about the graph with time for the students to work at the computers running SimCalc. Mm. So the, the students had time to run SimCalc and the teachers would circulate among the groups and talk to students individually or uh -huh. as groups, uh, so ask questions and so Okay, on. so students had that time to interact with each other around the technology. Now, did were students gathered around, like several students around a single computer or was it that each student had a computer or how did the groups... Generally, each student had a computer, um, but they were sitting in such a way that they were side by side. They were still kind of grouped. So they were grouping or interacting with each other as okay. well. And right. so, but each student had their own computer in both <coughs> Teacher E and Teacher M's classroom. And so what we noticed was that Teacher E and Teacher M both alternated uh, whole class teacher-led discussion with time for the students to work individually or consulting with a neighbor uh, around the SimCalc software. Okay. And then they would come back and share out. And so there was mm -hmm. an interesting alternation, and both of them had this, this sequence. And Teacher E had a much slower pacing than Teacher M, actually. Okay. Um, but they both followed that same structure. That same structure. And again, so remembering that this is a very linguistically diverse population of students, uh, in the small group, are they interacting in English? Are they uh, talking in Spanish? Are they... It wasn't immediately clear on the tapes. Okay. We, the, the video was focused on the teacher, okay. and the microphone was focused up there. Usually the teacher was wearing a, a microphone. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't hear the, the students interacting all that much. Okay. Um, I think in Texas that most schools are English only. Okay. So I think that, that the majority of the whole class discussion is in English. Right. But the small group discussions, I think, there's a lot more variation. Could go, yeah, right. depend on the students and what they kind right. of decided to do with that yeah. time. And actually, and Teacher N, I should say, did use, did code switch occasionally okay. uh, in front of the class. Okay. So he actually would intersperse Spanish words every once in a while. Okay. Um, so we have kind of that difference in structure um, between Teacher N and Teachers E and M. Um, and then you said you also focused on some of the mathematical discourse practices, and did you notice any themes emerging as you looked across the three teachers there? Absolutely. So one of them that maybe is an interesting thing that we didn't find, which I think is, is noteworthy to, to point out, is that the use of key words, key terminology, mm -hmm. was virtually the same across all three teachers. So if you chose a constant, a, a, a keyword like constant rate, 
uh-huh. all kind three teachers a, said something like that. Uh-huh. Either constant speed, constant rate. So the had, sort of the key mathematical terms or vocabulary from this showing lesson. Showing up in all three transcripts. All three transcripts. Right. They're being used and with relatively equal frequency. Okay. However, when you dig a little deeper, the way that the terminology is introduced and the way that it's used by the students and the teachers together mm-hmm. uh, appeared to be really different. And so there's this this dialogic or this discourse part mm-hmm. that appears to be quite important uh, in understanding why there's a difference in how the students are appropriating uh, this key terminology. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's where we then started looking a little more carefully at how the teachers were introducing the words. So uh-huh. just to give one example, okay. teacher N mm-hmm. uh, introduced constant speed during a whole class discussion. Okay. And it was a real rapid-fire discussion where the teacher was asking a question every about two seconds. or three, Not two seconds, that's an exaggeration. Every few seconds. Every few seconds. Uh-huh. It was just a rapid-fire uh, discussion. Uh-huh. And then as the discussion is going on, the teacher reaches a point where he says, okay, the bus is ahead, now he's winning, now he's losing. Is this a constant speed? Mm-hmm. And so the teacher is the one who's fulfilling the uh, or supplying the key vocabulary and in a sense doing kind of the intellectual lifting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that contrasts pretty strongly with the way that, let's say, Teacher E introduced that term. And so Teacher E did something similar in the sense that she was asking the students to share answers about mm-hmm. the graph, how fast was the bus going, she said. And so students offered answers. Mm-hmm. And then she referred to a previous student's contribution and said, but you just told me he was going fast, and then he slowed down. Mm-hmm. And then she said, so is that a constant speed? Oh. And so it's interesting how she it's then... It's now a question to the student based on the student's response. Right, based on the student's observation, mm-hmm. and then building on it, and then putting that, that key vocabulary, that, that key terminology, right. into a meaningful context, as right. opposed to, I think, kind of dropping it into the middle of a discussion. This mm-hmm. has a, it's an interesting, it's a subtle difference, but by mm-hmm. building upon the student's contributions, and then... Mm-hmm. Leading that towards Leading the vocabulary. Leading that towards the vocabulary building would seem to be a, a, a productive move. Right. Um, so, uh, and now you mentioned here building on the students' responses or the students' stories. Um, and so in the paper, you talk about actually that there were also differences in the uh, source of the stories in the whole class discussions. So can right. you say more about where the stories came from and how that uh, contrasted? As sure. Well? So, and I should say that a key part of the, the curriculum was uh, asking the students to come up with a narrative to explain how the graph could look that way. So come up with a story. So the, that the, fits the graph. So behind the scenes, I should say, or the bigger picture, is that the unit they were working on had a theme of this soccer team, and you're the manager of the soccer team. And so the, mm-hmm. the running story is that you're the manager of the team, and there's a team bus and a van. Okay. And they're both traveling from, I think, Abilene to Dallas. Okay. And they have to go 180 miles. Right. But something interesting always happens. Uh-huh. Um, so, like, for example, one year, the I think the bus is going like 90 miles an hour and then slowed <laughs> down. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and then the bus and the van. And the van maintained a constant speed, and they both arrived at the same time. Okay. And so the teachers asked the students, or the, the workbook prompted the teachers to ask the students mm-hmm. to generate a story that corresponded with each graph. And they were asked not only to tell a story, but also to tell a story that related to the speeds and the distances and to use the quantities in the problem. So mm-hmm. it wasn't meant to be a purely qualitative description, mm-hmm. but also a description using some mathematical terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking again at the contrast in the classrooms, okay. 
teacher and the teacher with the relatively low gain scores, right. whose students had a relatively low gain scores, uh, talked through the stories while filling in the uh, workbook at the document camera. Okay, in and a so, whole class setting. In a whole class setting. Mm-hmm. And again, was doing the traditional IRE format, the initiation okay. response evaluation, mm-hmm. asking students to fill in blanks, essentially, uh-huh. in the story. Okay. And then in contrast to that, Teacher M introduced the task and introduced the graph and came to agreement about the distance and the time and then sent the students off to work individually and in pairs to come up with a story okay. that would go along with it. And mm-hmm. that led to uh, the story in Excerpt 3, which uh, I, if you haven't downloaded the paper yet, you should just to read the story. <laughs> oh, yeah. <clears throat> Where David tells a really funny story about the, why the bus had to slow down involving a monster and uh, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of things. Right. But what's interesting is that the teacher built on David's story, which was probably of some questionable... Uh, taste. Uh-huh. And she refocused the discussion on the question of how is the speed staying constant on the mathematical objective. On the mathematical objective, right? right? Yeah. And so there's this interesting shift that she did mm-hmm. where she took the students' contributions, let them generate their own stories, mm-hmm. which of course once you do that you introduce a lot of opportunities for students to go lots of different ways. Right. But then brought the conversation yeah. back to the mathematics. Okay. And so that seemed to be a really interesting, again, a way that the teachers were using mm-hmm. uh, mathematical discourse practices mm-hmm. to focus this discussion mm-hmm. around the graph. So, uh, and with those those stories coming from the students and involving the students in the whole class uh, discourse that way, I mean, wh- one concern that always comes with opening up the discourse to the students, first of all, like you mentioned, it can go in a lot of different directions and monsters can be coming out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Another thing that can happen when you open up the discourse is that uh, student errors can now you know, come into play that otherwise might have stayed hidden if the teacher is just leading the way through. Um, and so another uh, key theme in, in the paper that you bring up is the teacher's response to those student errors. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about that theme as well. Sure. When a teacher asks a question and opens up the floor, a student, as you said, can offer an incorrect response. Mm-hmm. And that leaves the teacher in an interesting spot. In fact, mm-hmm. I was just recently rereading uh, Magdalene Lampert's book, The problems of teaching and the teaching of problems and she beautifully described I think in chapter one or two Uh the teaching event where a student gives a wrong answer and all the questions that run through her mind you know as a teacher what do I do to respond to this so getting back to this data the teachers had the opportunities to respond to their students and we looked at the students who gave incorrect responses and we said what did the teacher do? And we broke them into five categories based on what we saw the teachers doing. So okay. they could directly contradict and say, no, that's wrong. Uh-huh. They could ignore a wrong contribution. Just move on and try and to get the right one out. Wait till the right one comes. And uh-huh. we saw a teacher end do that quite often. Okay. They could repeat the question, which again is another way of essentially signaling the students that that answer was incorrect. Uh-huh. So it's a, um, an indirect signal, but so yeah. students are familiar with that, that right. verbal routine. Yeah. Uh, another option is to repeat the inaccurate contribution and solicit further student feedback. So it's like repeating the question, but it is acknowledging the student contribution, mm-hmm. but then asking for more feedback. And then maybe the last one is to ask a clarifying question. Now, there are other possible responses mm-hmm. when we talk about that. But these that, are the ones that you saw. These are the ones that we saw. In right. this lesson that you looked at. Right, right. Okay. So there might be other things like pressing for reasoning, mm-hmm. um, you know, asking a student to, someone else to explain what just happened, and, right, right. and so on. Yeah. So... And we broke that up into that list of five ways of responding, and we, based on the previous literature in this in this area, said, well, the first three responses, so directly contradicting, ignoring, 
and repeating the question mm -hmm. are relatively low level mm -hmm. because they're not really pushing the students to engage back with that answer. Mm -hmm. Repeating the inaccurate contribution and asking for more feedback is again bringing it up and pushing a little bit on it mm -hmm. and asking a clarifying question again is, is asking being responsive to the student and pushing them so we coded those as a higher level and what we found is uh, again there's a pretty consistent theme here that teacher E and teacher M were using more of the higher level responses mm -hmm. to student errors uh, than teacher N. Mm -hmm. However there were also some interesting differences that teacher M and teacher E were not exactly the same Right. and so we do want to make the point that there's not just one way to be right. you know, a teacher who's doing high-level mathematics with Latino students. Mm -hmm. There's actually multiple ways to do that. And there were some slight differences, but mm -hmm. also some, some similarities that are, are generative and worth thinking about mm -hmm. there. Thinking about all those themes together, and so you've, you've drawn you know, quite a few contrasts uh, between the teachers, some comparisons. Um, so thinking about this paper uh, overall, and so uh, um, again, I'm talking with Bill Zahner um, about his uh, article in JMB, um, Mathematics Teaching Practices with Technology that Support Conceptual Understanding for Latino and Latina Students. Um, and so I just would ask you sort of uh, for a key takeaway point that you know, we can send our listeners with. Um, if they remember nothing else you know, from this article, um, you know, what would be that, that idea, that key point that you'd like them to really take away from it? Well, I think the probably the most important one is that the common sense responses that many people express about linguistic diversity in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So for example, I need to give direct instruction of vocabulary because my students don't know the content-specific vocabulary or they're learning the language of instruction. Mm -hmm. We did not see a lot of evidence that that is what the high, we didn't see any evidence I should say, that the teachers who were the, uh, who had students who were high achieving in this study, mm -hmm. they were not engaging in those practices and in fact they were doing the opposite in some ways. So building on students' contributions instead of supplying the key vocabulary okay. um, or pre-teaching it even. Mm -hmm. um, and engaging in mathematical discussions with students in a linguistically diverse classroom uh, rather than the teacher dominating the talk. So mm -hmm. the key takeaway is that these practices are generative and productive and the technology appeared to facilitate and uh, provide a nice shared referent, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, for building that discussion, mm -hmm. um, but built an opportunity for Latino students to engage in, and from a linguistically diverse region of Texas, to really engage in high-level mathematics and to show that competence on a test that involves some really conceptually demanding uh, items. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's interesting that you mentioned that because so we happen to be talking at uh, PMENA in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and uh, last night Joe Bowler gave the plenary talk where she mentioned um, some of the critiques of a student-centered approach and this sort of conceptual approach to teaching mathematics, and she cited some of the critiques, which is that this is uh, fuzzy mathematics or that it doesn't get to the rigor that mathematicians and other people in the mathematics uh, field really think, you know, and it, it is characteristic of mathematics to have that rigor. Um, and so could you kind of uh, maybe echo Joe's point or add on to Joe Bowler's point about this rigor and, and how you're seeing it in these classrooms that you looked at with respect to the conceptual teaching? Sure, absolutely. So the, uh, the tension and the challenge is that there's a perception mm -hmm. that in a discourse-intensive classroom, the mathematical rigor is decreased, right? Especially when students are volunteering wrong answers, 
uh, or using informal using language. informal language yeah. exactly right. Uh, and so the yeah the the critique or the perception that is tried to be that's promoted is that that is less rigorous or that that's fuzzy. Right, right, and I and you know the the response to that I have a couple responses, but one of them is that the results of lots of learning studies show that the learning process is a uh, kind of a zigzag process Mm -hmm. and that students learn new things by relating it to what they know Mm -hmm. by breaking new ground by lots of false starts Mm -hmm. uh, and so on and so creating a learning environment where that's (coughs) happening the Mm -hmm. talk is not going to sound like a textbook and Especially when the ideas are in development still. Right, yeah. exactly. And so there was an interesting contrast, actually, as I was uh, working on this paper uh, very early on. I was also taking a graduate abstract algebra class. Mm. And I had the opportunity to listen to a professor mm-hmm. lecture about abstract algebra. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was fascinating because he was transcribing the textbook very precisely onto the board. Yeah. And everything he said was absolutely accurate. I think I took that class. <laughs> and I don't think I understood quite everything until I went home and you know studied really, really hard myself. Right. And, and, and you have to yourself try a, to go through the process of, yeah. Right. And here I am, a very highly educated math major, you know, very highly motivated student. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this idea that just simply throwing a rigorous presentation at students mm-hmm. is going to result in deep conceptual understanding mm-hmm. I think might work when your students are graduate students in a mathematics lecture, mm-hmm. but they probably will not work the same with seventh graders mm-hmm. in a typical school. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of the tension that, 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 that we see, is that the standards for rigor mm-hmm. that work at certain levels aren't necessarily the same. And in fact, I should add that in the mathematics classroom, the teacher would actually change his... Uh, this is really informal and not a research-based finding. Right. This is my purely you know, ethnographic yeah. observation. <laughs> but it was fascinating. He would change his whole voice and timber as he went from the lecturer to then giving commentary about the lecture he'd just done mm-hmm. and explaining it in informal terminology. Right. And so he, it was he really... He kind of steps out and... Oh, yeah. And yeah. actually, so I was tempted to bring a recorder to class and start recording this. And it was a, I was so fascinated by it, this uh-huh. interaction where he would say, okay, now I'm lecturing. And he would take out his notes and uh-huh. transcribe. Right. And then he would say, okay, so what we just did is we made an isomorphism. You know, and yeah. then he would... So it was, it was just fascinating to see right. that same process where yeah. really the learning, I think, was that, that interaction, right? Mm-hmm. Had it just been lecturing the rigorous way mm-hmm. that would have been the exact same as giving me the book and reading it out loud right so that's i, I realize it's a long-winded answer to this question but right. it's a, i yeah. think there's a there's a difference between learning something and particularly for school-age students mm-hmm. um, and actually the results of this type of conceptual learning are rigorous right and that's the part that probably yeah. needs to be shouted from the, the rooftop right that right? needs to like be this, the response right a, a and, very clear response to right. the crit- critics and this study actually i think is not you know not making the very large point about their math wars and reform in mathematics and so right. on but it is a nice very well shown example mm-hmm. that students can construct their understanding and that they can then that is robust and it works on a mm-hmm. you know aligned mm-hmm. uh you know, very well developed assessment, mm-hmm. and that I think is an important point to make. That there is right. a lot of deep conceptual learning happening. And if there are students that are English language learners, uh, that if a teacher has a tendency to want to help them out and support them by starting to sort of spoon feed the vocabulary or sort of tell the story for them and say, right. "Do you understand this story?" Right. Um, 
that that teachers need to fight that temptation because right. that's not that might be counterproductive. The effort to take the language out of the math might also take the math out of the math, mm. <laughs> and that's not going to work. Right, right. So that's I mean, maybe that's the, the the real pithy takeaway. Right, that you can't take the language out of math, and if you try to. Mm-hmm. You're essentially taking most of the mathematical reasoning out, right? All you're left with is bald computations. And that's not mathematical reasoning. That's not like in the common core standards and mathematical practices and so on. So I've been talking with Bill Zahner about his article in JMB uh, in Volume 31, and I also want to give you a chance to uh, acknowledge your co-authors because obviously this wasn't this wasn't a sole uh, labor, a oh, sole product. No, so. not at all. So I need to make sure I do give full effort, uh, full credit. So to Griselda Velazquez, uh, who was a co-graduate student with me at UC Santa Cruz, Judy Moscovich, my advisor, mm-hmm. Phil Vahey from SRI International, mm-hmm. and Teresa Lara Malloy, also from SRI International. Great. So uh, my final question for you is a little bit different. Um, I'm actually just curious, uh, if you weren't doing math education, if, if it was kind of an alternate life, uh, what would you be doing instead of math ed? Well, you know, in my early 20s, I discovered cycling, and <laughs> I really uh, fell in love with it. It's finally a sport that I, I really enjoyed, and maybe mm-hmm. it's the time to you know be contemplative while riding your bike and uh-huh. uh, interspersed with moments of sheer terror when you're riding <laughs> through the city and getting run over or almost run over. Uh, so I think I would be the only uh, non-doping professional cyclist. Oh, yes, <laughs> make I your mark that keep way. Keep on the straight and narrow. Yeah. yeah, I could have been the one to get all those titles. Yeah. <laughs> and you never know. You know, you could also be you know the source of a nice graph of distance and time of you know your cycling trip. That is a good point. <laughs> but we're trying to stay away from math. That so. Uh, uh, thanks. I, I do think about that when I'm on my bike. Right? <laughs> what, what this would look like if you had sim calc like hooked exactly. up to the rear wheel or something. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, thanks, Bill, for being here and uh, talking about your study. All right. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate this chance to uh, share my work. Thank you.